Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Uh, today here we're we're here with Aaron Budd. Aaron is a uh, estate planning attorney, corporate attorney. Um, helps with corporate, uh, corporate f- formations, and uh, we're going to talk about, uh, inside of the acquisitions and mergers world, what business owners should have in place and what our, us buyers, acquisitions, and mergers professionals should be looking for inside of that. So thank you for joining us today, Aaron. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ron. Cool. So I always like to start off with a very simple, let's get to know you type of question. So um, I don't ever tell anybody where to start just because some people had some you know, pain, painful childhood or something. So first question is always going to be start wherever you're comfortable, but tell us about yourself, who you are, kind of where you come from and what you stand for. So yeah, my name is Aaron. I, I have my own practice, ABLC Law. For, uh, I operate in uh, the state of Oklahoma. And uh, my practice is focused on estate planning, so wills, trusts, and then I do guardianship, probates, and business law. I have a, a passion for business, free market, entrepreneurs. I uh, was a business major in college and uh, studied uh, the focus in, in business and corporate law in law school. And the reason why I went to law school is I wanted to help people start their businesses. Uh, I'm a big believer, like I said, in the American dream. I want everyone to have to, to worry about the estate tax and applying to them personally because they've been so successful. Um, and in terms of my practice, I've been in practice for nine years. I've been on my own for three and a half and um, got three kids, two and a half dogs, because my wife and her twin sister have split custody of a Maltese. <laughs> and um, yeah. I love well, to, to garden and, and watch sports and uh, try and keep up with my kids because they're all young right now. So I have a five-year-old and a 10-year-old. I understand that. So how old are your kids right now? Uh, almost seven, five, and almost two. Oh, you got the whole girls, spectrum. So my life, my life <laughs> gets more expensive as we go. Uh, yeah, so my, my youngest is uh, uh, she's five. And she's already into princess dresses and pretty bows and stuff. And I'm like, man, that's going to – my son, if you give him a video game and a T-shirt, he's cool. Yep. <laughs> he, he prefers T-shirt sweats and video games. My daughter's like, you know, no, she wants the big bows and, you know, so I, I get it. Um, so – but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I'm 49 years old now, and I have two little ones, so I started a little later than most. But uh, so I, I get where that keeps it busy, and I you – know, like you, I like to garden. I have five acres out in the middle of nowhere. I call a little mini farm, and we uh, we slowly are turning it into uh, something that will be fun to fun to go down there and pick vegetables and fruits and stuff. Yeah, it, it's out by uh, uh, Lake Keystone, so it's all sandstone and stuff. So we're having to build soil. Like you, I think you, we were talking before we joined that you had to build a raised bed. That's the only I have two choices. I either build a raised bed. Or I start like augmenting the soil because it's sand and rocks out there. So cool. So inside of the uh, acquisitions and mergers world, um, business owners, you know, th- there's these statistics you hear all the time that like 90% of all businesses that go for sale never sell. And having looked at a bunch of those over the last year, I think I know why most of them aren't ready to sell, right? Um, they, in my opinion, a lot of businesses were created out of either accident or necessity. So accident would be where, you know, you're really good at something. You do it for a friend. All of a sudden, he tells somebody and you're doing it for that guy. And next thing you know, you're, that's all you're doing. You realize, wait a second, I'm not, you know, I'm making money doing this and I don't have to work. So you create something and you build it around it, right? Or you work for somebody. The other one is, is like you work for somebody and over time you decide you can do it better. and You break off and you go do something. But the business side of business, is, on, on most cases, especially here in Oklahoma, where it's a lot of manufacturing and non-technical startups, you know, it, the business side of business is an afterthought, <laughs> right? I, uh, I was talking to a guy yesterday who didn't know what an operational agreement was. And I was like, he's been in business for 30 years. He has an LLC. 
and I, I looked at your bank, asked to see your operational agreement to open the account. Now I've known my banker since I was a kid. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, how did you do your taxes? My my CPA is like, you know, my high school you know, sweetheart. You know, like it's just it's, that's just what's happening. So inside of all that, when we come, when it comes to us, you know, one of the first things I have to tell them is like, look, I can't give you. If I told you everything to put inside of this operational agreement, it, it wouldn't be fair to you because I'm looking to buy this thing. You need to go find a professional, right, and and do your documentation. Is it too late at that point? I mean, like, is there is there something to be said for like creating something because you're trying to exit, or what's your thought process on you know these business owners that just don't have their stuff together? Well, and, and that's that's actually not uncommon for people to not have that kind of stuff in place where they, they, they have an idea for a business. They've heard something about LLCs. So they go to the secretary of state's website, file an LLC, get the certificate of limited liability company and the articles of organization. And they think they're good. And maybe they're operating as a cash business and they're not putting the money in the bank or they're putting it in their personal bank account. So they've never had to open up an account in the name of the LLC. So no one's asked them for those documents. And just like pretty much anything in life, I mean, if you ask me uh, what the first thing to do is when you need to replace an electrical outlet, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can YouTube it, but it doesn't mean I'm an electrician. I think and the I first mean, hit would be to- so many things is that I know, like, even just in my own practice, I know a lot about a little and a little about a lot. And a lot of things that I know a little bit about, it's, I know enough to know that I shouldn't be messing with it. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, oftentimes people, when they're, they're looking for an operating agreement, it's because they're either trying to open up an account with the bank and the banker is saying, Hey, I'm not going to open this account for you until I see your operating agreement. I need to see many meeting minutes and resolutions authorizing you to open up an account with this institution or that you have uh, power to, to do this kind of thing. And uh, even with selling a business, I mean, it makes sense that a lot of businesses don't sell because by the time a lot of people are, are thinking about selling, it's usually because they someone's gotten sick, someone's passed away, someone is is running out of cash and they don't have the ability to continue to operate it. And so they're throwing a Hail Mary, hoping that someone's going to catch it. And um, the reality is, is, is when you, when, you, when you start a business, you should start thinking about selling that business from the moment you start it. Even if you have no intent of ever selling it, but that if you, you, you run it in that manner, then you're going to have plans in place. You're going to be doing things to boost the bottom line sales price or to make it easy for someone to come in and buy the business when uh, you do decide to sell, if you decide to sell, and if you already have the operating agreement in place, if you already do your P&Ls in a way and keep your books in a way that that someone that comes in and wants to buy it can easily run the numbers based on your P&Ls where they take out uh, the, that personal car expense, or you could even keep a set of books, um, not to have two sets of books like a legal and a non and a, an illegal one, but it, a set of books that you could have pre-preparing it for someone to sell. So that if you like, we already took out all the, um, the personal stuff that we, we benefit ourselves with. So here are the books that we would have the calculations that, that you would probably want to run off of. Now you don't have to do that, but I mean, the, the effort of doing that when you're already have, if you already have your books in order is not a lot of extra effort, but I mean, There's most a- small business owners are, are doing their, their P and L's, in April, uh, trying to rush to put them together as they, they get their taxes in order. See, I got to see the, the uh, you know, I do a lot of stuff on Skype. So even if I'm on, you know, on the phone, I'm or not Skype or, you know, Zoom or whatever one they want to use. Right. And it's, I like to watch the look on their face when I tell them, OK, the next step is a little bit of due diligence. I need to see the three years of trailing financials. Right. Because they did what you were talking about. They decided they wanted to sell it, so they started managing their books from that point forward as if it's for sale. And then they, you know, I come in and, like, I need to see your last three years of trailing financials. And they're like, three years? You know, I only decided to sell it last year. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, 
last year, I need to see what happened, especially right now, because last year was horrible for a lot of businesses. So, but uh, we all look, you know, everybody I know of, we look at the last three years, Charlie Financials, because we're looking for trends. We're looking for, you know, have you totally checked out, right? So it's hard to tell now because of COVID. But uh, a lot of times when somebody's getting a retirement age, you'll see that the, the income was doing pretty good. Maybe they had a decent trajectory. And then the last 12 months, 18 months, it kind of flattened out or even kind of tell down. And it's the, uh, it's like the same, what do they call that, the uh, graduation syndrome, or basically you're, at, you're, you're, you're in your last quarter and you don't want to do any of the homework. These guys hit to the point where they've decided they want to sell and retire. They quit going out and trying to hustle to land new accounts and stuff, so there's some tapering on that. But, uh, yeah, so um, inside of that whole, you know, okay, I've decided I want to sell, or, hey, I just got diagnosed with something, it's, you know, I got to fight for the next X number of years, right? It could be cancer. It could be anything. You know, we have an aging population of business owners, baby boomers and stuff. Um, once they have that wake up call, it's not as hard. as I, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. It's not as hard as uh, like you might think it is to go back and make sure your corporate um you know, bylaws are correct, your corporate meeting, you know, if, if I bring in a professional like you, my operational agreement's intact, uh, that type of stuff, um, kind of explain to me what, what would be involved if I came to you and say, look, I've been running this for 10 years, here's what I got, you know, I haven't even looked at my operating agreement since I started this 10 years ago, you know, can we prepare this that, you know, I can either leave it to a relative or we can sell it, so... What does that look like for a? It's it's really not that hard. I mean, I'd need to see what what they have in place already. Um, I mean, it, if if they don't have anything, that I'd probably want to look at. Okay, who's issued a K one, so that I know who who who's getting who's being treated as an owner, because whatever we do, we're going to need their signature in order to make it happen. So if you've got three partners and one of them is stopped showing up and has has ghosted everybody, that creates problem. That you can't just eliminate somebody. Now, I mean, there might be provisions that there's a document already, depending on how it's drafted. There might be a way to evict a partner. But uh, if there's something that requires unanimous consent or things like that, I mean, it's just better if everyone will sign off on stuff. But uh, uh, from there, I mean, whether we're starting from scratch and, and putting together a, an operating agreement for the first time, or we're adjusting what's already there. I mean, you can take an existing operating agreement and amend it, or you can take an existing operating agreement, scratch it, and restate it, and just basically create a new document cover to cover, and then have meeting minutes and resolutions of all the members or, or shareholders, whatever the, the style of business setup that they've got, and um, have those those new documents approved and ratified and adopted. And then you can have those meeting minutes and resolutions going forward. So you mentioned earlier, if they had, you know, somebody else is getting a K one, they have partners and stuff. So I know what I'm looking for, but like, what are the, some of the elements that need to be in either the corporate bylaws or the operational agreement? If you'll have partners as far as selling the business or leaving it to somebody, what are some of those elements Uh, that, well, there's that's, that's a, a very broad question in terms of answering it. So, I mean, one, there, there needs to be a clear delineation of if someone wants out, what happens? Is, are, is Does the company get first right of refusal? If so, is there financing in place in order for the company to be able to buy that person out? Uh, there could be a length of time that you, you tender your notice of withdrawal, and then it triggers a six-month or nine-month or 30-day Time frame where the company, if they have first right of refusal, has to get financing in place to buy that that individual out. How is that that person's share of the business valued? I mean, there can be established valuation methodologies, or they could uh, come to an agreement on on any number of the the sheer limitless ways to do valuation. Um, but generally, I mean, that there's that's it's not too terribly hard to do, but. Um, then there's things like is is bankruptcy considered an act of withdrawal? Is is divorce considered an act of withdrawal? If someone can someone transfer their interest to their trust and have their trust dis- distributed to their kids or to their spouse or, or wherever, um, but yeah, those kind of 
that kind of language can be in dictating what happens if someone wants to sell. Are they free to transfer or assign it to anyone they want to, or are there limitations? Does it have to go through a family member? Because um, then if, if someone like you is coming in, uh, we might need to get an, an amendment or a, a restatement of the operating agreement so that you can come in. So interestingly, one of the things I've come across is two things, right? Um, if they've got more than two, two or more partners, sometimes it kind of pushes me away. And I know some of the other guys too, unless we're looking at something pretty big, you know, 10 million in revenue or above, right? Um, but if you're looking at your small to medium sized businesses, your uh, 10, 15 employees to 50, 60 employees, if I've got more than two or three owners, the complexity goes way up, especially if they're not well documented, right? In the perfect world, they have a buy-sell agreement inside of there backed up by insurance policies, and it's very clear. Uh, one of the problems I ran into recently, three three partners, you know, uh, two brothers and a friend started a business 20-something years ago. Um, the friend passed, but he... It was de- it was de- done well. They actually had an attorney come in and, and took care of everything. The problem is, is there was no language inside of his operational agreement to the as to how the business was to be evaluated, uh, the valuation model for when they wanted to sell, and they were having arguments about it. So they called me because they're just gonna, one of them was going to buy the other one out, and at some point the argument just come. Let's just sell it to somebody else, and I'm just like. You guys still can't do this because you don't have a valuation model in there. You're going to have to have your attorney either amend that and say that, you know, you know, you guys can vote as unanimous. But they had something that was like a corporate appraiser had to come in and appraise the business. And their evaluation model was like, you know, something I'm not going to do. Right. So it was on them. And uh, the other one is, is that had they not had an attorney do their corporate bylaws as a corp. Um, but had they not done that and they couldn't have shown me, if they hadn't shown me where the attorney made those amendments and fixed the stuff and actually, you know, his estate, that guy's estate was uh, probated and it was taken care of, I wouldn't be interested because I'd have this third leg out there worried like, okay, is their family going to come back later and want a piece of this business, right? Because, there's you know, you can't leave things undone inside of that. So, um, you know, I think it, in my mind and, you know, is this a myth? Like, is, is it get more complex with the more people that are involved? Like, well, any, it- anytime you add more people to a room, it's going to get more complex just because you've got different personalities, different backgrounds, different interpretations. It's like with you have a room full of 10 people and you say one word, they might six of them might think the same thing. Two of them might think something different and two of them uh, might might think something that, that isn't even grounded in reality that um, the more people that are involved, the more open to interpretation, the more emotion, the more uh, it's just anything like that gets complicated. That's why it's always important to get stuff writing because yeah. you, you need to be able, it's almost like having strings, like you've got a starting point and with every individual, there's a string attached to them and whatever happens with them, you need to be able to have a string to the next leg and the next leg. So if it started with two, two, two guys, they're, they're best friends growing up and they started a company and they both passed away and they each gave their share. Uh, one guy had three kids, one guy had two kids and those kids each got it. So now there's two kids with half the company and three kids with the other half of the company. And then one of them dies. What started off is, is pretty straightforward of two best friends starting a company quickly becomes a complicated mess. And if three of the people want to sell, two of them don't, or it could even just be as straightforward as this happens with family businesses all the time. Mom or dad pass away. One kid worked in the business, two didn't. Almost all of the value of the estate is wrapped up in the business, and two of the kids want to cash out, but the one that's working in it, I mean, this is his, this is his golden goose. So what happens there? Right. And it gets complicated. I mean, with family, everything needs to be in writing anyway. Friends, everything needs to be in writing. And the reality is, is the more papered over something is, the easier it is for someone else to come in and not have to hear, well, this is one of, this is what we've talked about and this is what we've talked about. Like I can just look at documentation at two o'clock in the morning if I'm up late working and I can see I went from A to B, B to C, C to D, or I'm seeing A to B, B to F. Okay, where's the in-between? 
It's interesting you say that because when I first started off uh, in business, and you know, I've been an entrepreneur since a kid, but when I first started like creating LLCs to run my business, <clears throat> we started off in uh, Hawaii. I had this thing called Diamond K Networks, and we were installing network systems to schools and businesses and stuff. It was just me and a couple of military buddies. And back then, it was like we know each other. We all have these real high level, you know, uh, we work for military intelligence. We all we were very trusted individuals, right? And so we just looked at, we know each other, we trust each other, we don't need any of that paperwork. And now I'm of the mindset, I was like, wait a second, we know each other, we trust each other, so we need the paperwork. And the paperwork isn't a sign of distrust, it's a sign of, I trust you so much with this business, I want to document it step by step so that if anything happens to me, you're taken care of, right? Or if anything well, happens to that, you, I'm taken care of. If it breaks of. down, then yeah. you don't have to argue on it when you've got a personal relationship and you're trying to argue the separation of a business it's just better to fall back on hey this is what we agreed to in writing the beginning let's just fall through that we'll go through that and let's try and keep our our friendship yeah i've seen that i've seen that where you know i decided to pull out of one of the businesses and the other guy wanted to keep it and i was like there's just no way this is going to survive right so transfer my shares to them knowing you know, a year or two down the road, it just wasn't going to, and he didn't want to hear it. But um, it was really hard, and I, I, you know, to maintain that relationship because because of that, we didn't document things well enough on that one. And uh, so, like I said, now I'm of the mindset when I do anything, it's like, how well can we document this, right? How well can we insure each other? You know, uh, I always kind of joke around. I, I've got, I carry enough insurance on different things that I, I kind of I'm very cautious cautious on the road. Because there's a lot of people who make a lot of money if I get hit by a bus, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> so I'm uh, more dead than alive right now. Yeah, I, you know that 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 occurs to me sometimes. And um, but going back to like you mentioned a word I wanted to bring up. You mentioned to like you know this the myth of of things. One of my favorite questions to ask is what's the what's one common myth around your field or your profession inside of, you know, business and corporate law or estate planning um, that you just wish didn't exist that you'd like to clear up? Um, well, there's, there's a number of them. I mean, one, if, if you have a will that, that keeps you out of probate, uh, that, that's one common myth. Um, but two, even just getting a certificate of, of limited liability company or the, uh, the, the certificate of incorporation and the, 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 the articles of incorporation, the articles of organization, depending on whether you're an LLC or a corporation, that's enough. And the reality is, is all you've done when you've done that is pay the state money. So they give you a piece of paper that if you were sued, that piece of paper in and of itself may be worth next to nothing. I mean, it's a starting point, but generally speaking, if you don't have insurance in place, if you don't have meeting minutes and resolutions, it's going to open up your company to uh, alter ego kind of arguments where uh, essentially that, well, there's there's no documentation to prove that you, the individual, is separate and distinct from you, the, the president and CEO of this company. I mean, if, if the company and the individual are so closely intermingled, then there's not enough paper to show that the, the company is separate and distinct. And that's one of the main reasons for meeting minutes, resolutions, operating agreements, is we want to be able to show that the company operates specifically and intentionally and has documentation to support it. Just like uh, we have a social security number and a driver's license and so and birth certificate, all those kind of things. That's kind of what the, those documents are for a company. And so if you're sued and you're a corporation, you don't have meeting minutes and resolutions, there's a very decent chance that the attorney, if they, they get a judgment against the company, will be able to tear through the company and get into the individual. And, and so having those kinds of things in place is incredibly important, and a lot of people don't realize it. Well, yeah, I got, I got an operating agreement. I got this thing from the Secretary of State. Well, that's not really going to help you in a lawsuit. I mean, it might a little bit, and maybe if the attorney that's suing know much of anything, but, um, I mean, even with all those documents, um, if there's not enough assets in the company to be able to pay the, uh, any judgment, then, then I can guarantee you there's going to be an alter ego claim that's made. So that's where they, what do they call that? Piercing the corporate veil? Is that the yeah. same thing? Yeah. So, um, 
like I actually know a couple people that happened and it it went down to the point where they you know you know the guy was one of the guys was a professional speaker as part of his thing he would go give presentations and sales presentations in front of a room of people so he actually used his business corporate card to get things done like his hair he actually got his nail you know his fingernails manicured and stuff and they use that inside of there going, look, he's just this is just a personal ATM to him. He's not even running this as a business. You know, who pays for hair and nails out of their corporate LLC in a real estate business? Right. And he has the turn. He had to go back and argue, like, wait a second. He's a speaker, too. You know, this is part of the presentation. You know, he has to look his best when he's in the front of the room. But, uh, you know, I think it's not a lot of people think, well, I've got an LLC. They can't touch my personal belongings. Um, it's not true. Right. And, and that's one of the reasons I, you know, as an acquisitions and mergers guys, one of the reasons we need to look for their meeting minutes, not just their LLC operational agreement, but their meeting minutes. And if they're a corporation, the bylaws that they're doing them regularly is because, you know, anything they've done over the years, the liability that, you know, that they've, you know, introduced over the years kind of comes along with them. Right now, there's some things we do in acquisitions and mergers and stuff like that to cut that off as best as possible. It doesn't mean you're not going to go to court and convince a judge and a, you know and and you know some attorneys that it's been cut off appropriate. If that previous business did something, you know they're going to reach out to us, right? So um, knowing that the corporate bylaws are in place and the documentation's in place. You know, when we close on a business, one of the things I tell the closing attorneys part of the due diligence is sit down with them and complete their meeting minutes, complete their stuff, make sure it's all documented. Even if I'm, a lot of times we buy it, what's in a, what's called an invoice purchase where we create a big long invo- list of invoices. We create our own holding company, LLC. And we start buying assets and put it in there. And then we buy the brand name as a, whatever they're calling themselves as an asset. And we do a, a fictitious business name as that. So we can, we own the brand. We can, you know, do it now that is a parent company or whatever, but to, to, that we do that to separate this off, but that doesn't mean I'm not have to prove that later. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's two other things that are, that are missed that, that people have is that, well, I've got an LLC. I don't need insurance. <laughs> and uh, the reality of that is, is, uh, Kind of the same as if you don't have meeting minutes resolutions, you, you run the risk of the company being declared a sham entity if there's no insurance. There's actually cases, uh, there's one case, a, a tax cab case out of New York, that created uh, corporations for each cab, and each cab had minimum insurance on it. And so uh, you've got all these cabs out there with, let's say, 25, 50 minimum, <laughs> minimum insurance, like we have in, here in Oklahoma. Well, one of them inevitably gets into a, in a car accident. And the only asset in the the the, uh, the company is the car, the one car, and minimum insurance policy. Well, the court declared that the entity was a sham entity because it was underinsured, that it wasn't reasonably insured. And so even though you've got an LLC, even though you've got a corporation, you, you still need insurance. And it needs to be a reasonable amount of insurance. And that's where having a, a relationship with a, a good, uh, if you're in business, commercial insurance agent, that's going to be able to just sort out here's kind of industry standards on insurance that you, you you don't you should not skimp on insurance i mean first of all insurance is the first line of defense i mean ideally you've got enough insurance in place that no matter what kind of legal claim that can be brought against you we don't even have to worry about alter ego because we've got insurance in place to to stop everything before it gets there because um, i mean that llc is the last line of defense and if if, if the insurance in place i mean that's i mean it's toilet paper thin if if we have nothing there on that so you say the corporate veil the thing that separates me from the liability of my actions and the liability of my business actions my personal assets versus my business assets you know we believe that that's the llc or the articles of incorporation for corp you're saying without all the rest of the stuff that veil is very thin yeah. Oh, and you kind of touched on that earlier. And this is where I see people screw their company up the most is that they're the sole owner of the company. And so every net dollar that's there after expenses is theirs. And they look at it in their business accounts. Like, well, this is my money. And they pay their mortgage out of that account. And they pay uh, for their hair or their nails or things like that, out of their personal expenses. And, um, 
that's where we start to have that blurred line of, okay, is the company the same as the individual? I mean, if we're paying for personal expenses out of the company, then um, that that makes it a lot easier for a jury or a judge to say, oh, I mean, they, they are, they're so hard to distinguish that, yeah, they are one and the same. And that's where if, if anything is done, like in terms of what I generally tell my clients is if you need to pay for something personal, distribute the money from your business account to your personal account and pay for it. Worst case scenario, if the business does pay for it, then you as an individual need to write a check back to the company, uh, just reimbursing it for your personal expense. It's like if you, you work for another corporation and you, you're allowed to use a corporate card, but you used it for something personal that's not authorized where you, you end up having to, to pay the company back for that unauthorized purchase. That um, it's the same kind of thing. Treat it the same way. Even though it's your money, you need to give it from the company to you. And if you're not, you need to have a paper trail showing that you've reimbursed the company for those expenses. Same if you pay for per, yeah, your business expenses on a, a personal card that you need to reimburse yourself personally from the company for those costs and have a paper trail for it, not only for the IRS, but for, for lawyers. Because the Secretary of State doesn't care. Right. The IRS and, and, and attorneys are the ones that are going to care if you don't have that stuff in place. It's interesting. It's one of those, uh, I honestly think business owners, are, they get busy in the day-to-day operations of their business, and it's out of sight, out of mind. Right. So they were told they needed an LLC to protect their business. They go out to the secretary of state and they file one. And maybe the bankers told them that if you want a bank account, I need to see your operational agreement. So they went to Rocket Lawyer or something silly online and and printed one and they hand it to the banker and they think they're golden. And there's just so much more to it. And that comes to light when you're looking at, you know, events like what I do, right? You know, the buying and selling a business because I want, I'm going to look at everything you have, right? I'm going to look at your trailing, your last three years of trailing financials. I'm going to see your bank statements for at least the last 12 months for the, for the corporate account only. I'm going to see your tax return for the last three years, right? And when I start seeing that you're, you know, paying for your kid or your Netflix account, <laughs> you know, and your kids, you know, uh, what was that one I just seen yesterday or the day before there was a, uh, I started looking ABC Mouse or something like that. I was like, "What the heck's an ABC Mouse?" My kid, I have kids, and I was like, "I thought we had something like that for them." Started out, turned out it was that. So they've got all these personal expenses inside of this account, and I'm like, you know, luckily you haven't had any problems because that is going to open the door. This company is producing, I want to say, eight nine million dollars a year, but it's just you know two brothers running it, and they both they just said you know they they kind of blessed each other and said you have two grand a month personal spending allowance, and I have a two thousand dollars a month personal spending allowance, and they've been literally you know paying for car leases and you know personal cell phones, you know their kids and wife's cell phones up to that two grand and I was like, that's fine if you have like a lot of documentation on expense reports and you know other stuff that you can show like you know. It doesn't matter to me in this case because, you know, the business isn't something I'm going to move forward in. But I can see that that's going to be a real problem from them if they ever up, you know, in, end up in court where they have to defend that it's a legitimate self-sustaining entity outside of the two individuals that own it. Or even another concern entirely is that the IRS comes in saying, hey, did you classify this as income? And that's $24,000 of additional income every year. Did you pay taxes on that? Right. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's interesting in this whole space. Like, you know, I'm within, you know, about a year and a half being in this space. I come from the real estate world. So a lot of that transferred over because, you know, we hold our, our houses and LLCs. So, we, you know, that was already in place for me. And, you know, I had investment firms, so I already had attorneys that set up that stuff and kind of learned my lessons early just by luck, luckily by seeing other people who didn't <laughs> seeing other people whose corporate bells were pierced because of, you know, you know, in both cases, the individual did something wrong. And there's like, you know, it was warranted that they they smashed her that stuff and get a hold of their money because these guys were trying to hide it. But uh, it was still uh, interesting that. You know, 
I didn't realize how easy that would be for the court and the attorney because, you know, the, the myth that we're always told is you have an LLC. It's a separate entity. It's its own human being. It's its own thing. And it's a big concrete wall around it. Nobody can get outside of your LLC to your personal belongings. And that's true if <laughs> you do everything right, right? If you treat it like a business, run it like a business and, um, you know, have your paperwork right. It's what it sounds like. So. Um, well, and so, it also helps to not be a jerk to people. I mean, the bigger jerk you are, the more likely that a judge or a, tri- a jury is going to want to assist the person yeah. suing or people suing you yeah. in, in a corporate veil argument. And so I tell people all the time, it's like, look, these LLCs and the, you know, having your, like a lot of the guys in the real estate, including myself, we put our properties in trust and stuff like that. That's awesome. Uh, it gives you some, um, you know, uh, animosity. Basically, you're anonymous. It gives you a little bit of uh being anonymous, it's a little hard to figure out what you own and stuff, but that will not work if you go around hurting people because somebody's going to have a vengeance and they're going to hunt, you know, they're going to hunt you down and figure out what you have, right? Um, it What it does is it cuts back on the frivolous stuff. So the same way I think this happens inside of the LLC stuff is, you know, um, from an attorney's point of view, if you get in there and everything's ironclad, everything's documented well, everything else, is that a discouragement to, to continue on sometimes or, you know, and it can be, yeah. I mean, um, it's not if you've got all your stuff in order, especially in Oklahoma with an LLC, uh, the the likelihood of of having and you've got insurance in place. I mean, you'll oftentimes even if you've got a potential four or five million dollar claim, but you've got two million in insurance and in an LLC where you've got all the documentation in place, it, it, it's such a pain in the neck dealing with it at that point. That you know what, we'll just settle for the insurance proceeds and go on our merry way. Right. So a lot of people don't get that, right? A lot of people think that, uh, you know, here's a good question. What happens if they don't have the insurance, right? So there's no, there's no, like, I can settle for this and go away. They kind of have to stay, right? So they're actually, you know, um, adding fuel to the lawsuit to continue by not being properly insured or anything, just because there's nothing there to settle the needs of, you know, in this case, it's still the accuser, but like if somebody you know had something wrong done, done to them and they're rightfully owed money, there's no easy way to access that. You, you almost have to fight until you get through the wall. That's well, attorney, I've, right? I've, I've seen that happen to, to clients where they don't have enough insurance or, or this happens in the cannabis space a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't get insurance. And so um, people are still operating their budgets as, as if they didn't need it. When at that, if you don't have like on, on cannabis, even specifically, I mean, if, if you can't get insurance, you need to self-insure, which means putting money away every month into a pool to pay for the eventual legal costs. Because in cannabis, what I've seen, it's not if you get sued, it's when. Because there's too many crooks that were are still involved in cannabis. <laughs> or these people that have unrealistic expectations of of how much money they're going to make. And so they're promising the world or, or who knows uh, that those kind of things uh, where there's not money to settle and there's not enough operations to to have it be coming off of cash flow of the company that it creates an issue of okay guys you, you where how are your assets currently positioned because it might be that that this company goes down we liquidate it we pay off what we can. And then you guys might be writing a check or you, you might be losing that rental property that you got. Uh, your bank account might get garnished that you, you might need to to look at, at where you can tighten your belt and come up with some additional money to make this go away. Because the, the reality is, is this could end up being considerably worse if we go to trial. Now, I mean, there's still, you got to get over the alter ego, but I mean, part of my responsibility generally is to tell them, hey, this is what I think can happen. And here's kind of a rough rough estimate of what I think the probabilities of those different options occurring. So that's interesting. You just reinforce something. So for the, our listeners out there that uh, don't know where we're sitting, we're sitting in Oklahoma and uh, where we have a medical marijuana and medical, medical cannabis you know, availability. And it's kind of one of the loosest states there is um, for it, meaning that's that getting ready think, to change. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's like six thousand something growers in this state, and and just as many, if not more, uh, dispensaries. Right. So, you know, I had somebody, you know, 
reach out to me and goes, hey, I want you to help me do acquisitions and mergers. I want to buy up a bunch of these. I'm like, no, you don't. And he says, why? I said, because they made it so easy to get into it. The, the background checks and stuff were so light to get into this thing. And there's so many people with it. A lot of the people in this space were in this space before it was legal. And they're not the kind of people you want to buy and you know, partner with and do business with. Right. I've just seen I've seen Especially it already. in a cash business where you need a lot of trust. Right. Um, I've, I've, I've seen good friends of mine in the real estate space jump over into that space contribute money to something and find out that the guys that they're working with, you know, had been doing this way before it was legal and won't take no for an answer and are doing things like crazy stuff, right? Like when a crop dies, they bring one in from another state, which is a federal offense, right? So, you know, like people ask me, like, are you interested in that space? Like, not right now. It's just too immature in Oklahoma. We left it open way too open. The people that are in the business, I'm positive there's some really awesome business owners in the business. Yeah, there are. There's some really great people. Yeah, and I honestly know that there's still, you know, a large percentage of, you know, the guys that were doing it way before this are there still. And uh, they they have their own business ethics that I just don't want to deal with. So. Even then, just something is is central to to running a business is having a bank account is incredibly complicated in cannabis i mean you're i've got clients spending ten thousand dollars a month just to have an account with the bank that doesn't even count i mean just that's 10 that the expense per month they gotta make ten thousand a month just to cover the the bank costs yeah it's crazy the um when i uh when Colorado first got I got their license. I actually had a call from Colorado where a guy was, you know, hey, I'd like to invest in some real estate in Oklahoma. And I'm like, awesome, sounds good. He goes, yeah, how many how many houses can you buy? He goes, he he wanted to pitch a deal like a JV where he funded the purchases and then we split the you know equities so much and uh, I go out and find them and stuff. And it sounded really great. You know, I've, I've done this for some other like doctors and lawyers and stuff. And I didn't ask him what his business was. And I said, well, how much money do you have to get started with? And he's like, well, I can probably bring three to five million. I was like, bring? Wait a second. Why do you say bring? He goes, well, I'm going to load it up in some duffel bags and bring it to you. It's underneath my mattress. I live in Colorado. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> Number one, that's money laundering guy. And uh, until they pass it at a federal level, we just can't play that game. And uh, number two, I don't, you can't just deposit that kind of money in a bank account. There's like, even if they, like, they made it, I guess once they make it federally okay, then the banks will open up. Uh, I think they just passed, I just seen something on the news. They were passing something to make it easier to bank. But, uh, you know, I just didn't want anything to do with it. But I got more than one call, one call like that. Hey, I, I have a lot of cash. I'd like to invest in real estate. I'd like to chat with you about it. And I'm like, I had I had to get really good about it. Well, where does your cash come from? <laughs> well, even then, like, I, I, there's still so many issues because the banks, even if they make it federally legal, they're still going to have issues with money laundering. The banks are going to have to be able to source as best as possible where the money's coming from, and they're going to. It's just I, there's other businesses that are a lot less complicated. Exactly. So I don't. I'm not interested in that space. And the the guys that I know that are are a little more. Uh, risk takers than i than i'm just i'm just not at that stage right now so but that's interesting we we uh you can't be in oklahoma without that topic coming up right and it's just yeah. interesting that it, it, it normally comes up especially I had five people when i got past i had five people calling up hey i got a business idea like <laughs> i'm not interested i i've actually evaluated a i've evaluated a concrete plant the guy was doing three and a half million dollars he's turning out 40 percent profit margins on three and a half million dollars so you know he's making a million plus a year in profit and he's wanting to sell it because he's got a greenhouse project he wants to fund and i'm thinking have you ever actually been in the agricultural business and he's like no but my friends grew this all their life like I don't think you know what you're getting into. This really, it's like, have you ever run a farm before, right? Have you ever produced crops? These things die. They get infested with things. Anyway, he just didn't get it. So I, uh, uh, the only reason I was looking at that particular plant is I was looking at buying a bigger one and it got on pause. So, but 
the interesting thing was is there's people jumping out of legitimate businesses that are making them cash because they see they just do the math like okay that sells for so much per pound and if i could produce so many pounds for so many plants you know i have a fifty thousand square foot building we're going to be a billionaire and that's like that's just not how it works right well, just, the things as simple as writing off your your expenses i mean things that it, I just that, that's that's part of things you need to be aware of just in running a business is the tax ramifications and implications of certain things, and and capital gains taxes how that's going to impact if you your business it, it may make sense to start looking at okay what I mean right now they're they're starting to talk about raising the capital gains tax rate I mean if you're looking to sell it now might be the time to start that that um, that process because if they raise the capital gains tax rate and you sell your company you're going to pay a higher tax bracket. Yep, absolutely. Those are all, those are all things to, to be aware of. Is, is unfortunately the people in D.C. have a huge impact on the um, the in the in bottom line uh, what take home that we have. So, um, I got one more question before we start getting into kind of how do people contact you and stuff. Um, there's a little bit of uh, some articles and stuff that were out not too long ago and stuff about having a and I, I, it might just be I might be seeing them because I uh, I watched a webinar on, on on the subject, so it might be targeted to me. But um, having an what do you think about the process or the idea of having a trust own the shares of an LLC or a corp so that it passes through without going through a state? Is that something that's smart? Does it create a lot more risk? What does you know, what does that do inside a corporate structure? So whenever I set up, set up an estate plan, I, I always transfer in the business interests unless there's something in their operating agreement that bars it uh, into their trust. If it's an irrevocable trust, it's going to be a little bit more complicated of an evaluation. But if we're just doing a revocable living trust, then we're transferring it in. Reason being is it's not uncommon for business interests to be owned by one person, even if they're married. And so if if wife or husband is the business owner and they pass away the way probate works at least in oklahoma is if an asset is owned in one person's name it's going through probate when they pass away and the wife doesn't automatically get it husband doesn't automatically get it it goes through probate and uh, if there's no will or trust in place then um in in oklahoma if they're they're married with kids then the, the spouse is getting half then the kids split the other half in equal share in equal shares. So even if uh, we want all of it to go to the spouse, uh, we have to have a plan in place. The benefit of a trust is when we put it into the trust, and the, the the owner dies, we're not having to go through probate. And depending on the size of the company, it might be six to nine months uh, or longer. Uh, and if there's a fight over it, then it it could be two three years, and the company might be dead on the vine before someone's got the ability to deal with selling the property or even really running the company. Yeah. I see that actually quite often, you know, where, you know, businesses end up in an asset sale because nobody could jump in and run it. You know, it's, I actually talked to a guy the other day that who like, this is a common statement to like, they're going to find me dead in my office chair. This guy actually said this, right? Like we're talking to him like, Hey, I was calling you today. A friend of mine said that you're thinking about retiring. He's like, retire hell. They're going to find me dead in my office chair. One of these days I love doing what I do. And I'm like, okay, so what does that do for your relatives? Like, don't know. how do you, how do you have your business set up that it, that it works that way? I was like, and he says, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, is it an LLC or a corporate? He says, it's an LLC. I said, what is it side of your corporate bylaws and stuff says, you know, is there anything in there that says who runs this and how, what authority they have to, to write checks and pay people and stuff. If something happens to you, you're 78 years old, you know? And the guy was like, I don't know. My attorney takes care of all that. I was like, are you sure? Right. Cause I haven't seen one that's done right. Even when the attorneys did right to where if somebody's going to die in their seat, the, the, the corporate operational agreement and the bank accounts have a secondary person on that has full signing authority. And the operational agreement says on, you know, inside of there, there's language that says, you know, or even even in meeting minutes on something on my departure, on something that happens to me, this person can run this until until it's handled, until prayer weight settled. That that language seems to never be there. So, you know, I think it's a myth that people think that just because they have an attorney that set up their paperwork, that 
if they pass that the business is going to continue until somebody runs it because there's some extra steps that need to be in there. And that's not that attorney's job to make sure you put a second person on your bank account and, you know, that stuff. So what's your thought process in that world? Well, and, and, and you're correct. I mean, just because an attorney has done something doesn't mean that, that they've thought of everything. I mean, we're, we're human. And even then, life, life gets complicated and complex. And you can have one person that's incredibly intelligent put something together for you. But it, it's, I mean, there's, like I said earlier, there's, there's 10 people in a room. They all hear the same thing. How they interpret it's going to be three, four, five different ways. That's the same thing with, I mean, if I put together a document, it, it's, you have to be very careful about how terms are defined. And even then, things can still be open to interpretation. And, uh, but yeah, having multiple people uh, with check drafting authorities and even just having basic accounting um, practices and bookkeeping practices where you've got, if someone can cut a check, they can't sign the checks. Uh, where I mean that, that's that's not an uncommon practice, and having those kind of controls in place, that if you've got someone other than you that can write checks, that you've got someone other than you that can sign checks, that if something happens to the company, in in having a, a the, the will or the trust outline, here's the next in line trustee, then uh, they can step in and start making decisions. I mean, if it's a, a will, then we're going to have to get them appointed personal representative first, but. Uh, I mean, it doesn't hurt to review. You've got a plan. You should review it at least once every three years. So the, that guy was really cool about it. He's like, hey, I'm going to call my attorney. We got off here because I don't think I'm set up the way. Like, cause first thing I said to him was, yeah, you know, who, who else besides you can sign the payroll checks? He goes, the payroll is done automatically through payroll. It's like, oh, great. Who, who writes the checks? You know, and who signs the checks that go out when you guys pay for your, you know, your materials and stuff? I still sign everything. I was like, well, there you have it. If you don't have that stuff set up, you know, he, you know, he said, you know, I should know that. He actually, he was, he was, he was nice about it. I wasn't being rude or anything. But he said, you know, I was out for two or three weeks, a few, a few, I think six, eight months ago for a medical procedure. And when I got back, everything was falling behind. I had a bunch of checks to sign and I didn't think of that. And I said, well, you know, think about like how long that could have, you know, how long would it take for that company to not survive? For your suppliers to quit showing up with materials and you know you know your uh, your buyers your market you know you can't deliver inventory eventually money's going to run out people can't be paid payroll that payroll company is not paying your payroll if your account's empty <laughs> right so anyway he well, got and, it and he's, and he's calling go ahead sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no that's fine like you know it, what i was saying is like if that's not in place, then, you know, there's just nothing that's going to happen. It happens all the time. There was a great electrical company here that uh, I, I didn't notice that it was for sale until I realized they were just auctioning off, like, the building and the trucks and everything else. And, like, they had 15 vehicles and stuff at one point, you know, uh, probably 30, 25, 30 uh, techs. And, you know, they were doing pretty good. And come to find out, the uh, the owner passed. They tried to keep it afloat, but it was all the kids were fighting over to probate, and nobody was left to run the business. So basically, they they ran out of you know cash in the actual operating account and had to shut it down because nobody could write any checks to anybody, right? So nobody could buy supplies, nobody could do anything. So well, that, to circle back around, I mean, one of the most kind and loving things you can do for your family is have the plan in place and run your company in preparation of it being sold. Even if you never intend to sell it, but if you can give it to your kids in a condition that it can be sold, then it eliminates, or at least makes it highly unlikely for the situation you just said to occur. It's and interesting. Because entrepreneurs like to be in the middle of it all. I mean, it's their baby, and they want that sense of being needed, but I always encourage people to move from a place of being needed to a place where the company operates as well, if not better, when you're not there. Somebody asked me the other day. He said, uh, "How do I, how do I grow my business? You know, faster. You know, I have a marketing degree. I've got you know, I used to do business coaching, marketing coaching, and stuff." And I said, "Run out like you're going to sell it." And he says, "Why why would I do that? I'm, I'm not ready to sell this. I won't be ready to sell it for you know, for for another two three years." And I said, "I get that, but when you run something as if it's for sale." You're tracking the things that matter for the business because a business is sold based off a multiple of net profit, revenue, seller's discretionary earnings, you know, 
uh, financial analysis of the, the well-being of the company. So if you managed it as if you were going to sell it, then, you know, you'd be you'd be focused on increasing the bottom line, on running a clean operation, on having the paperwork done correctly, right, on having your accounts regularly. The business, you know, the business would thrive. I've not, I haven't seen a lot of people worried that it would, you know, running it that way would distract them from from the business. And I think it's just the opposite. I think if you run it that way and you bring the team in to run it that way and you have the employees to run a business as if it's for sale, then the business is just going to run better, right? Uh, it's going to run whether you're there or not, and and um, that's going to make a huge difference. Well, it's also going to increase the likelihood that you're going to have an employee that wants to buy the business or a group of employees that say, you know what, I can see ourselves running this place. Cool. Looks like fun because so, you're going to open it up more people to take ownership when you run it that way as well. We're having a lot of fun here. It looks like we've been on here for almost 55 minutes. So let's let's do one thing real quick. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, they have questions that they want to ask uh, uh, ask you, or they want to help have you help them straighten out their corporate paperwork. I guess it'd be in Oklahoma. You're licensed here. Are you licensed yeah, yeah, other it's okay. in Oklahoma. So if you're an Oklahoma corporation and you want to reach out to Aaron, um, how would you like them to do that? Uh, you can call. Uh, my phone number is 405-990-9472, and then my email is just below my name on the screen there. Awesome. And what type of uh, what type of law do you not practice, right? So somebody calls you and they, wanna, they want you to set up their corporate bylaws, you can do that. And they can set up your state. Yeah. We already talked about that. Is there anything like, just don't call me for this, I don't do it? I don't handle divorce. I don't handle family law. I don't do criminal law. I tell people that if you come to me with a traffic ticket, you're going to jail. There's going to be multiple felonies uh, attached. <laughs> I, just, I don't. I don't do that. That kind of stuff. And I wouldn't be that bad. But I just. I try to stay away from family stuff uh, any more than I already deal with it in terms of businesses and, and estates. And uh, I, I just. I want to stay away from criminal just because I, I don't want my mistake to cost someone their liberty. Cool. And then if you guys want to reach out to me for anything, I'm on LinkedIn. I'll put that over there. It's going to be underneath him there. I guess I can play the temporary switch there. Let's see. Move me over there. Let's do that. I I can't move over across. (laughs) I might be able to move you. Let's just just, just do that. Let's try that. That work. There we go. So there we go. So now if you're watching this live, uh, my LinkedIn handle is below me. And the, the logo is now uh, above Aaron there. So, <laughs> uh, and then if you want to email me, my email is me at foursell2sold.com and the numbers are numbers. So, me at four, the number four, S A L E, the number two, S O L D.com. And then Aaron's for our podcast. I realize we didn't spell that out because uh, for our podcast people, that would be Aaron, A A R O N at A-B-L-E-G-A-C-L-A-W.com. So uh, Aaron, Aaron at ablegacylaw.com. There you go. That, there you go, ablegacylaw.com. So uh, I'll turn that back off. And uh, real quick, so let's get that out of the way. Now I have my camera set up weird. <laughs> Anything that you would like to add uh, before we wrap this up? So we're at 57 minutes now, and uh, our listeners are very patient, but we normally cut it off right around that time frame. So is there anything that we missed? Is there any questions like, man, he should have asked this question. We missed that. Uh, one, one other thing, and I've seen this happen too, is uh, when, you, when you have a company, it's not uncommon for people to acquire new lines of the company or create new – like as they're, they're operating, they see it, it – a need in another area and they start doing that as well that be really careful about having everything under one umbrella. Uh, Cause I've seen that happen where there's a company that becomes this behemoth in terms of it's doing 15 different things that are not interrelated, that it's better to have those broken up into their own separate entities. People don't like the idea of having to have all the different sets of books then but in terms of of making your your business more saleable, if you've got them broken up, then you can keep bits and pieces. It's easier to if if something happens, 
and we don't have enough money to cover um, uh, paying out cash to the th- two kids that don't want to be involved, that we could sell off different lines and still give the one that wants to be involved the ability to have all the other stuff still in place. It's easier to break it up. If it's, it's easier to break it up to begin with than to try and break it up later and carve out what's tied to what source of income, what expenses are tied to what. It's just always easier to keep it separate from the beginning. And acquisitions and mergers, guys like me, sometimes we're looking for carve-outs, right? We're looking for something that you do that's not your core business, but maybe an add-on to something we already bought. And it's it's not impossible, but it's a heck of a lot easier for you to carve that off and sell it off to somebody like myself if you if it's running in its own LLC. So I'll give you an example, right? We were looking at a, a concrete manufacturing company, and I won't say its name, but um, just because they're still in business and they're great people and they're working on some things. But... Um, they have about 25 or more semis to haul their concrete products. They have a welding shop, and then they have a concrete plant that actually mixes concrete, and then they have a pour shop where it's poured and the molds are set. And that transportation company, those trucks, actually were involved in not one but two fatal accidents in the last 10 years. And the insurance premiums went through the roof for everything. So... The insurance premiums would have went through the roof for the transportation company had they set it up the way that I like, you know, had I been the purchaser and I still might buy this company, we're still looking at it, but um, they just got to fix a couple things before we're allowed to. But um, had they set it up correctly, that transportation company, as high risk as it is, should have definitely been inside of its own LLC, had its own insurance policies, its own actually umbrella policy on top of the insurance policies. And when they had those fatal car wrecks stuff, that insurance would have shot up, but the rest of the corporate policies and stuff, you know, would have stayed the same, right? Or should have stayed the same. So the concrete plants, insurance policies. So, you know, to whereas they've got them all underneath the same vendor, the same policies, and they were paying something uh, uh, to the tune. And I think it might have some medical insurance in it, but on their first set of books they gave me, it was like $780,000 a year you know, and insurance premiums and for a company that does $12 million a year, you know, 10 to $12 million a year in revenue. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I totally, I see that. So if you, I, what you're saying, different product lines, different risk portfolios. So if, if you open a new product line and it has its own set of risks and stuff, you should probably put that in its own container and run it as a separate business. Well, even just as, as asset protection, I mean, a lot of doctor's offices, what they'll do is they'll have the business, uh, the practice be its own entity, the building that they practice out of, if they own it, owned by its own entity, and the equipment that they use owned by a third company, and then the practice has leases with the equipment company and the building company to use those those um, those the, the building and use the equipment. Well, if something happens with the practice, they can shut the practice down, but they still have the building and the equipment as an asset that's protected and insulated from a claim. And um, they could always start up another practice and at least keep whatever damage is there limited to the insurance and whatever accounts receivable are tied to that company. Cool. So is there anything else? We, we, uh, we covered quite a bit today. We've been on here for right at an hour now. Um, is there anything else that, you know, a person buying a business or a person selling a business um, need to just really be aware of and look for? I would I would start now if you don't have a team of people, even if you've got an attorney, you've got a CPA, um, you've got your insurance agent, uh, maybe find a time to get all of them together to sit down with you and talk through, okay, what do I have in place? And that may create a, a brainstorming session where the attorney hears something that the CPA is saying, and whoa, 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 we need to, we need to talk about this more. Or the insurance agent is hearing the attorney and the CPA talk and say, oh, well, I mean, I didn't know you, you were doing that. We need to add this endorsement and this endorsement, or we can remove this coverage from your policy now. That if you've got that team of advisors in place, then, uh, or if you don't, get a team of advisors like that in place so that you don't have to be the expert in everything. You got the experts in the room, and they can talk amongst each other and sort out all the different things. And um, the the better that team can work together, the the easier it is for you to sell your company at some point in the future, or certainly at least run it, 
so that you are more insulated from risk, that you might be more efficient, uh, that you, you're better documented in terms of, of loans and things like that, that it'll make your life easier to, to build a team like that in, uh, around you. And you brought up some very important, important as, as companies change, they need to have these conversations or these brainstorming sessions with those people. I've got a good example, right? So I was talking to a business owner and we were talking about liabilities. I was like, man, I learned my lesson a few years back. And I says, what do you mean? He says, I have business insurance on my business, but I didn't know it didn't cover my sign. And I had this huge sign put out by the road. And uh, he said it was, you know, I didn't know it was covered until we had a big storm come through and the storm knocked over the sign and somebody hit it. They were suing us. So, you know, not only would the business insurance not replace the sign because it wasn't covered, they didn't cover the liability of the sign falling into the road, you know, or anything else like that. Because I guess there's some insurance writers and stuff that if you got signage, you got to put it in there and you got to tell them what it is and how big it is and how heavy it is and where how it's mounted and all this other stuff before that to be properly insured, right? This was a big, you know. Uh, kind of billboard like sign on a on a on a giant pole in front of his business, and uh, like you know he just assumed since he had an umbrella policy that that was under the umbrella, and yeah. uh, you got to have these well, regular right. talks. You can do that 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 kind of brainstorming conference meeting. I mean, you can, you don't have to do it every year. I mean, you can do it maybe once every three years or two years. Right. If you've got a conference room on site, have them come to your office and say, "Hey, do you see anything that that we need to talk about that I might not be aware of?" Because it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day of what do I have to do next, what do I have to do next, to to forget to step back and look at it from a global view. And having objective eyes come in and say, hey, did you think about this? Uh, it can make a huge difference. Right. Cool. Well, I want to – we're – we're right at the time where we probably should have uh, wrapped this up. We're having fun. We might do another one. There's enough, so much information here. You and I probably should chat again a few times. Uh, you, we both, you and I, we do a panel discussion once a month uh, where people can actually jump on and answer questions with us. So you're usually a, a regular guest on that. So uh, people can. You know, we have the next one coming up next week, don't we? I do believe so. I have to double check. So um, we have one coming up pretty pretty quickly here. And uh, so I may need to make sure that it's out there. Uh, the way to find that is on my LinkedIn. Again, that's this one here. So I'll post that if you're welcome. if you're looking for the video. Or I'm not gonna. Uh, if you go to LinkedIn and Google Ronald or, or not Google, you, you search for Ronald Skelton. Uh, I'm on Ron Skelton underneath there as far as the the LinkedIn URL goes. Uh, so if you're looking at the slash in slash name, it's not Ronald. It's Ron. So for all the guys on the podcast. But um, if you follow me on there and watch, I post and I invite pretty much everybody. So um, as we get these events, you want to jump in on a panel discussion or if you want to just, you know, be in the same Zoom room with us and ask a group of acquisitions and mergers and insurance and lawyers and and people in this industry questions to move your game forward. We do host those. They are free and it's solely for the purpose of helping you to move forward. I want to thank you today for coming and joining us. Is there any uh, parting words of advice you'd like to say before we end of the stream? No, uh, just uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, like I said, run, run your company like you're, you're going to sell it. Great advice. Great advice. I appreciate it. Today's show is brought to you by the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurial Professional Mastermind combines the peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.